Well, very good morning to you all. It's such a joy, pleasure, and a privilege to be here with you again. It's such a joy to see many familiar faces as well as new faces. And also such a joy to see that the Lord has blessed Pastor Jason's ministry here, as well as uh, in addition to Pastor Jason and Paris's family. Truly, children are a blessing from the Lord. He's just so overjoyed for you both as you care for this little one in these early days. And also, I just wanted to say thank you for blessing my heart as we were singing. I have to admit, I was getting a little bit of chills up my spine there as we were singing, just hearing all of your voices lifted up to the Lord, singing it as well, as well with my soul. Just, just a little slice of heaven I was thinking about just there. And I just want to thank you for that encouragement even to myself as we think about this grand and glorious text, a text in which really no human, and certainly not myself, could do any justice to it. But we ask that the Lord would bless the reading and the preaching of his word through the Holy Spirit this morning. So if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3, we'll be reading from verses 19 through 25. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 through 25. And I will be reading from the New American Standard. The prophet Jeremiah writes, Lamentations 3, verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering. The wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, we are weak, we are frail, we are broken, we are needy. So Lord, we ask and pray that you would come in power this morning, that you would come and you would meet us in your word, that you would give us who are broken and suffering beauty for ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise for a garment of heaviness, that we may be as oaks of righteousness planted by the Lord. For the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On October 20th, 
1828. A man named Horatio G. Stafford was born in North Troy, New York. It was said that throughout his life, Stafford was a man of God, a man deeply devoted to following Christ and living according to his word. He eventually became a successful and wealthy Christian lawyer. He settled with his family, a wife, four daughters, and one son in Chicago, Illinois, where he practiced law. In 1871, Stafford grieved over the loss of his son at the tender age of four years old. That same year, shortly after the death of his son, the great fire of Chicago broke out, which consumed much of his real estate property, devastated his wealth, and sent him into financial ruin. Two years later, in 1873, as he was still picking up the pieces of his life, he planned a trip to Europe for himself and for his family. Oliver Spafford was held up with some business back in Chicago. So he sent his wife and four daughters ahead of him to sail to England on the SS Ville du Havre, expecting to see them in just a few days' time. On November 22nd, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic, the ship accidentally collided with an English vessel and sank in a matter of minutes. When the survivors had been rescued off the coast of Wales, Stafford's wife sent him a telegram with the words, saved alone. All four of Spafford's daughters drowned in the accident. Spafford immediately got on a ship to see his wife in Great Britain. The ship took the exact same route as the one carrying his wife and kids. And as he passed by the exact place where his four beloved daughters had died, grieving over a lost fortune, grieving over a lost son, grieving over four lost daughters, he took a pen in his hand and he wrote these words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. God met Horatio G. Spafford with the deepest peace to meet the deepest sorrow. In his greatest affliction, Spafford knew the presence of God unlike any other before that very moment. It may seem strange to think that God most powerfully meets a man or a woman in their times of greatest suffering. But it isn't strange when you come to think about it. I've never heard anyone say, my times of greatest intimacy with God have been times of ease and prosperity. I've never heard that. I've only heard the opposite. My times of greatest intimacy with God have been the times where God has met me in my darkest hour. Those who have lived as Christians long enough know the truth of the words of Samuel Rutherford who said when he was put into the cellars of affliction, the great king keeps his finest wine there, not in the courtyard where the sun shines. Christians know the fact of what Charles Spurgeon said, that they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. 
Suffering in the Bible is often God's chosen method for revealing himself to his saints. God sovereignly and graciously uses the means of suffering to meet those who wait for him. Prophet Jeremiah was no stranger to suffering, and he was no stranger to the grace of God. His most famous nickname is the Weeping Prophet. Jeremiah was called by God in 627 BC as a teenager. He was called as a youth to preach a message of judgment upon an entire nation, his own nation. That's no small calling. But he did preach that message faithfully for 42 years, spanning the reign of five kings in the nation of Judah. He preached 42 years worth and 52 chapters worth of God's judgment. Why preach such a message, Jeremiah? Why are you such a downer? Why don't you just lighten up? He proclaimed this message of judgment because it was God's message. God was about to judge his people using the country of Babylon. In the year 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, fulfilled the word of the prophet Jeremiah. He burned the temple of God, demolished the palace of the king, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and deported an entire nation. And as the prophet looks out upon the ransacked, devastated, burning city of Jerusalem, he laments, he grieves, and he, like Horatio G. Spafford, writes a song. He writes a song. He writes a song in the form of an ancient Jewish funeral dirge. He writes a funeral song, an elegy, a hymn meant to be sung at a funeral. And this song is known to us as the Book of Lamentations. Lamentations is a poem filled with the laments of the weeping prophet over the city of Jerusalem. But in the midst of the incredible affliction, Jeremiah reminds himself and us of how to rightly respond in suffering. In the process of weeping over his affliction, God meets Jeremiah and teaches the weeping prophet a profound lesson in the school of suffering. So in our passage for this morning, Lamentations 3, 19-25, I want us to see four ways to meet God in the midst of affliction. Four ways to meet God in the midst of affliction. First, pray to remember the sovereignty of God. Pray to remember the sovereignty of God. Verses 19 and 20. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. Before verse 19, Jeremiah has reached perhaps his lowest point in the entire book. In the preceding verses, verses 17 and 18, Jeremiah says, My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Jeremiah has hit rock bottom. He's in the deepest of pits. He's in the lowest of lows. He's in utter despair. But it is here where God 
meets him. It is in the darkest moments where the light shines the brightest. At the end of verse 18, Jeremiah utters the word Lord. He utters the name of God. This is the first time that the name of God is mentioned in all of chapter 3. And it's almost as if recalling the name of God causes the prophet to stop. To stop. To pause. To think. To ponder. And to offer a prayer. And so he begins to pray in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wonder. Now, some of your Bibles may translate verse 19 as, I remember my affliction, but that's not the idea in Hebrew. The word remember in Hebrew is an imperative, a command. It is addressed to someone who is listening, someone who hears the prophet in his loneliness. And that someone is God himself. That someone is the Lord. There is no one left in the decimated city to hear him. Jeremiah is found alone praying to his God. We get a chance to look over his shoulder and listen to the hushed tones of the weeping prophet as he pours out his heart to God. Jeremiah asks God, he beseeches God to remember four things. He asks the Lord to recall his affliction. Don't forget my sufferings, Lord. Please remember me. He prays that God would remember his wandering, literally his homelessness. Now that Jerusalem has been reduced to rubble, Jeremiah does not have a place to live. He wanders about looking for a place to lay his head. And Jeremiah prays that God would remember the wormwood and bitterness. Because of the devastation, all of the crops, all the animals, all the grain is gone. There's nothing left. There's no meat, there's no dessert, there's no bread, there is nothing. He eats wormwood and bitterness, referring to bitter-tasting herbs and shrubs used for medicinal purposes. Edible, yes, but extremely bitter to the taste. This is his prayer. Remember these four things, O Lord. Now, it's interesting to note that the four terms of verse 19 are not the first time they appear in this chapter. Actually, they are repetition. In verse 19, Jeremiah asks God to remember his affliction, his suffering. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. I have seen affliction because of God's wrath. In verse 19, Jeremiah asks God to remember his wandering. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. He, God, has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. God has caused my wandering. In verse 19, Jeremiah asks God to remember his wormwood and bitterness. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. Now, what do you notice about all of these verses? In all these verses, God is the active agent. God is the one who brought affliction. God is the one who caused wandering. 
God is the one who gave him wormwood and bitterness. So Jeremiah prays to God to remember these things, that it is God who has brought about these things. The prophet says in his prayer, Lord, in my suffering, I acknowledge that you are the one who has brought this about. You are in control. I know you are in control. I trust you are in control. But Lord, in your sovereignty, please don't forget my suffering. See, Jeremiah has not forgotten the providence of God in suffering. No, he remembers the sovereignty of God in his prayer. He prays not to a God who has lost control, but he prays to a God who is in total control. Brethren, we need a theology of suffering that doesn't remove the sovereignty of God, but honors the sovereignty of God. So what can we learn from the fact that Jeremiah knew God was doing this to him, but he also prayed for God's compassion on him. We can learn that God sometimes puts his people in the furnace of affliction to awaken in them a spirit of prayer. God, the great architect of our lives, designs our sufferings to snap us out of our prayerless stupors. Don't take my word for it. Zechariah 13, verse 9, God says, And I will bring the faithful remnant through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. Then they will call on my name, and I will answer them. God brings his faithful children through the refining fires of suffering to cultivate in them a heart that calls upon the name of the Lord so that the Lord may answer them. John Calvin says this, It is therefore necessary that we should be subject from first to last to the scourges of God, in order that we may from the heart call on him. For our hearts are enfeebled by prosperity, so that we cannot make the effort to pray. Brothers and sisters, are your hearts enfeebled by prosperity? Philip Langdon says, where there are no cares, there will generally be no prayers. You see, brethren, when we go through suffering, when things seem out of control in our lives, sometimes we say, ah, oh, I'm so frustrated, I'm so frustrated. I can't do anything about this. All I can do is pray. And you know what? You're right. And that's not a bad place to be. In fact, that's where God wants you to be fully reliant upon his grace, fully reliant upon his mercy, calling upon the name of the Lord so he can answer you. Praying is not the least thing you can do. It is the most thing you can do. Brethren, besides the word of God, prayer is the most powerful thing we have in our arsenal. Don't do the opposite of Jeremiah. When we suffer, our first instinct is to 
stop praying. Because we tend to want to try to fix it all or all of it ourselves. Don't do that. Beloved, let's just covenant together here this morning to pray when we suffer. To pray when we suffer. And we will suffer. Let's just agree here this morning that when we go through trials and afflictions, we will go to our knees. We will run to our closets. We will call upon the name of the Lord so that he can answer us. So remember the sovereignty of God in your suffering and pray to your sovereign God in suffering. Secondly, the second way to meet God in the midst of affliction is to remind yourself of the faithful mercy of God. Remind yourself of the faithful mercy of God. Verses 21 to 23. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. As Jeremiah prays for the mercy of God in the midst of his hopelessness, he finds his hope in God. The prophet says, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Jeremiah battles his suffering by recalling to mind the truths and the realities of God, of God himself. He recalls God. He thinks on God. He fights affliction with truth, with the knowledge of God. And we would do well to do the same. Well, Kaiser says, in the face of the direst of adversities, Israel and we are offered hope. It is not a word about answers to the problem of evil, not a word about circumstances or men or movements. It's not a word about systems of political or even theological belief. It is simply a word about our Lord. He is faithful. He is loved. He is gracious. He is full of compassion. Brothers and sisters, the attributes of God don't change when you're suffering. God is still the same, yesterday, today, and forever. When you're suffering, it is not as if God has all of a sudden changed. No. God is still sovereign. He is still faithful. He is still loving. He is still good. He is still full of compassion. Jeremiah doesn't put his hope in circumstances. On things getting better. He doesn't put his hope in tomorrow. His hope is in the Lord, period. His hope is in his God. His hope is in who God is and the character and attributes of God. You see, when we are in moments of distress, it's tempting to place our hope in things getting better. We often tell ourselves or others, it's okay. It's okay. Tomorrow will be better. Tomorrow's a new day. Things are going to get better. And I get that. I totally get that. I understand that. But when you stop to think about it, let's be honest with ourselves. We don't know if tomorrow will be better. We don't know if things will be better. We don't know if the circumstances will change. 
That's not up to us. What if tomorrow isn't better? If tomorrow isn't better, we run the risk of plunging ourselves deeper and deeper into despair. Tomorrow is uncertain. Circumstances are uncertain. But God is certain. Ground yourself in the unchanging, ever faithful, constant rock of God, and you will find for yourself a hope that can never be shaken. Now, before we move on to verses 22 and 23, let me tell you a little bit about the structure of the book of Lamentations. Let's flip through the book a little bit here. Notice that chapter 1 of Lamentations has 22 verses. 22 verses. Chapter 2 has 22 verses. Chapter 3 has 66 verses, which is merely just 22 times 3. And then chapters 4 and have 4 and 5 have how many verses? 22 each. That's because these chapters are written poetically in the form of an acrostic. An acrostic. An acrostic means that each verse starts with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, therefore there are 22 verses for each chapter. For instance, if we make an example from the English alphabet, we're just making an example from English, chapter 1 verse 1 starts with the letter A. Chapter 1 verse 2 starts with the letter B. Chapter 1 verse 3 starts with the letter C, and then D, E, and F until the alphabet runs out. And then in chapter 2, you start all over again. Chapter 2, verse 1, starts with the letter A. Chapter 2, verse 2, starts with the letter B. Chapter 2, verse 3, starts with the letter C, and so on and so forth. Each chapter has 22 verses to match the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, why is this so important? Because chapter 3, verse 22 and 23 are the center of the book of Lamentation. This is the center stanza starting with verse 22, which means that the mercy of God is the very center, the heartbeat of lamentations itself. Darkness and despair begin and end of the book, but the core, the midpoint, the heart of the book focuses on the faithfulness of God. The Holy Spirit is trying to tell us that when everything around you seems bleak, when you are surrounded by suffering and affliction that threatens to engulf you, God's faithfulness shines brightest. So in verse 22, the very center of the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah says, the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. Here, the prophet uses the covenant name of God, the Lord, Yahweh. When God made his covenant with Israel, he called himself Yahweh. I am who I am. And Jeremiah says, Yahweh's loving kindnesses never cease. The word loving kindness in the New American Standard, mercy, as it's translated in ESV, is an absolutely beautiful Hebrew concept. It is the word chesed. Chesed. It's not chesed, it's chesed. If you really make that guttural sound. Chesed is an all-encompassing word. It means something like, something like this. The covenant God has a covenant love for his people 
that emphasizes faithfulness, truth, compassion, goodness, and kindness. All of that is rolled up into this one Hebrew word. <laughs> Yahweh has pledged his steadfast commitment to his people in his covenant. Yahweh has pledged his steadfast commitment to you, brothers and sisters. A commitment born out of loyalty, faithfulness, joy, compassion, love. And Yahweh's covenant faithful love and covenant commitment never ceases because Yahweh never ceases. It never ceases because Yahweh is eternal. His compassions never fail because Yahweh never fails. They go on forever because Yahweh goes on forever. The eternal God has an eternal love for his people, an eternal love that is rooted in his very own attributes. This is who your God is. He is who he is. Do you remember the book of Job? Do you realize that in the book of Job, Job never finds out why he suffered? Did you ever think about that? We know that in chapters 1 and 2, Satan approaches God and God lets Satan persecute Job. Job never finds that out. To the end of the book, Job never knew that scene had occurred. Even by the end of the book, Job still doesn't know why he suffered. The book of Job is not meant to portray some intricate, theologically complex answer to the problem of evil. The point of the book of Job is to trust God who is worthy to be trusted. To trust God even when you don't understand why you are suffering. To trust God even when you don't know why you are suffering. Trust God because he is faithful. There is no shadow of turning with him. Just as God's loving kindnesses never cease, his compassions never fail. His compassions are new every morning. Rather, the fact that they are new every morning means that God has bestowed today's mercies for today's burdens. Every morning, God designs today's compassions to meet today's trouble. Every morning, God has measured out a specific amount of grace to match your trials for that day. So when you wake up each morning, you do not have to rely upon grace from yesterday. You do not have to rely upon grace from last week or last month. No. You have grace anew, compassion anew for your trials today. The Lord has given you grace abundant specifically for today. It is not that yesterday's grace is weak or stale or deficient or cold. It is that yesterday's grace was for yesterday. And today's grace is for today. As the song lyrics say, every morning that breaks, there are mercies in you. When I've fallen and strayed, there are mercies in you. When the storms swirl and rage, there are mercies in you. 
God will bestow grace specifically fit for each moment, whatever moment that may be. He has a special mercy for each hour. He will be true to you because he is true to himself. Great is his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. Thirdly, preach to yourself God as your portion. Preach to yourself God as your portion. Verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Now, that's odd. His soul is talking to him. Has Jeremiah gone crazy? Does he all of a sudden have a split personality? His soul is talking to himself. No, Jeremiah has not gone crazy. Jeremiah is preaching truth to himself. That is, Jeremiah does not listen to himself. He does not allow the dark parts of his heart to dominate his thinking. He takes the initiative. He speaks truth to himself. He preaches truth to himself. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. He's absolutely right. When our thoughts begin to run out of control, when our unhappiness and our complaining and our grumbling begins to overwhelm us, we need to stand up. We need to stand up and say, self, listen up. The Lord is your portion. No one can take him away from you. Self, listen up. The Lord's loving kindnesses never cease, for his compassions never fail. Self, listen up. If God is for you, who can be against you? We need to preach truth to ourselves. Jeremiah preaches to himself, the Lord is my portion. That is to say, the Lord is my inheritance, my prize, my reward. In the wake of the devastation, Jeremiah is not after monetary inheritance. He's not after earthly prizes. He's not after worldly rewards. He's after God himself. He's after the person of God. He is pursuing God himself. God is his inheritance. God is his prize. God is his reward. He yearns for God himself. The Lord is my portion. Let me just say this. Suffering puts everything in perspective. When you suffer, you realize earthly things can only go so far. A plot of land won't help. Money won't help. Cars won't help. Houses won't help. Neither will reputation, video games, golf, movies, music, entertainment. Neither will alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, medication. Even chocolate doesn't satisfy forever. <laughs> Nothing will satisfy you in suffering like God. The Lord must be your portion. God will be enough to satisfy you. Jeremiah says, therefore I have hope 
in Him. Do you remember when we started? Verses 17 and 18. My hope, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. But here, after preaching to himself God as his portion, the hopeless man has found hope once again. Sir Norman Anderson, former professor and director of the Advanced Legal Institute at London University, supported international fellowship of evangelical students for 60 years. He was a Christian. He had lost all three of his children in their early adult life. And his wife became so demented she could not even recognize him. At one of the last public events where he spoke, he was asked, when you look back over your life and reflect on the fact that you have lost all three of your children and how your wife of 60 years no longer recognizes you, do you ever ask the question, why me? You're responding, no. I've never asked that question, why me? But I have asked the question, why not me? I am not promised as a Christian that I will escape the problems encountered by others. We all live in a fallen world. I am, however, promised that in the midst of difficulties, God, through Christ, will be present with me and will give his grace to help me cope with the difficulties and bear witness to him. That's it. That is it. I am promised that in the midst of difficulties, God, through Christ, will be present with me. This is your reward. God himself. He is infinitely good. He is infinitely satisfying, infinitely joyful. He is infinitely glorious. So preach to yourself God as your portion, and the hopeless one will find hope once again. The fourth and last way to meet God in the midst of affliction is to wait for God who is good to those who seek Him. Wait for God who is good to those who seek Him. Verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the person who seeks him. And for a long time, I thought, many years of my life, I would always read verses like this in the Bible. Wait for God. Wait for God. And I thought to myself, what does it mean to wait for God? I mean, waiting seems like such a passive thing. Does it not? And I didn't understand that until I finally got to this passage. What does it mean to wait for God? Well, the prophet gives us a very important clue about what it means to wait for God, and it is found directly in this verse. The most important defining quality of Hebrew poetry is what we call poetic parallelism. Poetic parallelism. You see, Hebrew poems don't rhyme like English poems. Instead, the dominant feature of Hebrew poetry is the fact that there are two lines which state parallel truths. Often, the second line explains the first line. So here, those who wait for him is parallel to the person who seeks him. 
Together, they mean that we are to look for, to search. It carries with it the idea of eager expectancy, an intense anticipation for a certain coming event. You know that it is coming, and you wait for it to come. But you don't just wait lazily and passively. You seek for it. You look for it. For instance, if your spouse is away on a trip for a long time, and you go and you pick them up at the airport, when you pick them up at the airport, you don't just sit back in your chair and put your hat over your face and fall asleep. And then when they come out of the gate, they have to shake you awake. I'm here. I'm here. No. When you wait for your spouse, you stand up or you sit up on the edge of your seat. You are waiting eagerly, expectantly. You are craning your neck to see if you can just catch a glimpse of them emerging from the gate. You are waiting eagerly. That's the idea. To wait for God is to search for him, to seek him, to have intense anticipation of a certain event that he will come to you. Rest assured, brethren, he is good to those who wait for him. Isaiah 64 verse 4 says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Psalm 34 verse 10 says, They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. God is good to those who seek him. If you call upon the name of the Lord, if you wait expectantly for him, if you seek him, he will come to you. But he will come in his own time. And he will come in his own way. John Patton was a Scottish missionary about 125 years ago to the island of Tana in the New Hebrides. After his family died, he was left alone on that island, and he served by himself for four years with only two converts. One day, the whole island took up machetes and spears to try to kill him. He had only one way to escape. He asked one of his two converts to help him. The Christian told John Patton to climb into a tree while he distracted the tribe so that Patton could escape. This is what Patson wrote about his experience in that tree. Listen to these words. I climbed into the tree and was left alone in the bush. The hours I spent there lived all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's presence, to feel his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, 
alone, all alone in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? If you're not a believer here this morning, you have no rock to stand upon in your suffering. I exhort you, O friend, to seek God. Seek God at a time that you may be found. Seek God because he is good to those who seek him. I exhort you to call upon the name of Christ. Be saved from your sins and from the wrath of him. Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect life that we could not. He died for sinners, and he rose again, victorious from the grave, conquering sin, death, and hell, so that you could be saved. Jesus Christ came, and he experienced, he was the one who experienced affliction and wandering, wormwood and bitterness, so that when we experience it, we may exchange a garment of mourning for a garment of praise. I urge you, Christ is the only hope we have. He is the only friend who will not fail again. Brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, as we close here this morning, can I just speak to you from the heart for a moment? Just a little heart to heart. I can only imagine some of you are suffering immensely. Some of you perhaps are going through days of affliction which never seem to end. Just do me a favor. Just do me a favor. Honestly, I don't care if you remember me. I don't care if you remember my face. I don't care if you remember my voice. I don't care if you forget me, because you probably will. But do me a favor. When you suffer, don't forget this passage. Don't forget the heartbeat of lamentation. Tonight, when you go home, tomorrow, next week, next year, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when you suffer, because we will all suffer, every single one of us, do not forget the heartbeat of lamentation. Do not forget the truth of this passage. When you suffer, read this word from God. Read it. Know it. Experience it. Taste it. Trust it. God is good to those who seek it. Will you listen as I read this to you one last time? This I recall to mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Let us pray. Father, who is in heaven, Lord, we need you. We need you every hour. Lord, we are so weak and broken. Lord, we want to acknowledge that you are sovereign over all things. Would you help us in our moments of suffering to remember that? To remember who you are? 
to remember how you love us, to remember Christ, who has given everything for us and for your glory. Lord, would you help those who are suffering now? Would you help them to call upon the name of the Lord? Would we lift up this word, this morning, our lives to you? We pray in Jesus' name.